1: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and
0: welcome wherever you are in our great country or actually around the world. This once again is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm always excited to be with you to share other thoughts, other ideas, other issues that many people do not describe here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And As frequent listeners know, the whole idea of All Rise, yes, it's what bailiffs say when judges take the bench, but the idea behind it is that if we employ liberal libertarian values, a classic liberal, like we'll talk about today, we will all rise together. And what are those values? Well, candidly, you know, it's honesty, it's responsibility. I know that's a harsh word to use in today's society, but responsibility at all levels of society certainly individual, group, corporate, and certainly governmental those are all part of what our wonderful guest today, Emily Cham- Chamley Wright, from Institute for Humane Studies, will be talking about classical liberal values, human human values as well. So, who is this young? Who is this wonderful lady? What is Institute for Humane Studies? Because uh, I uh, Googled IHS a little bit ago and came out with uh, Indian health systems or or all kinds of different things. It's not particularly well known, but IHS Institute for Humane Studies has been around. Oh gosh, since the early 1960s and is doing simply wonderful work. So without my talking more about it, Ms. Emily Chamley-Wright, you are the head of IHS. Welcome, and tell us a little bit about your background and how you became to be involved and president of the Institute for Humane Studies. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Jim. And first, let me say thank you for having me on the show. This is such a joy.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll, (laughs) we can sign off right now. Well, no, let's keep going. That's that's a good idea.
2: (laughs) We've got but, a lot uh, to talk about. We've got a lot so to talk we, about. So, we yeah, simply I'd, do. I'd be happy to give you a little bit of my background. My, uh, my first encounter with the Institute for Humane Studies happened uh, more than 30 years ago. It was in between my uh, undergraduate days and right before going into my graduate studies uh, pursuing a Ph.D. in economics. It was in the late 1980s. And... It was an opportunity when I uh, connected with the Institute for Humane Studies, or IHS, to engage with other graduate students and scholars who were interested in ideas within the classical liberal tradition, talking very much about those values that you articulated. And shortly after encountering IHS I, uh, and working my way through my Ph.D., Uh, That's when I became a professor of economics at a small liberal arts college, a great place uh, called Beloit College in south-central Wisconsin, and I was there for about 20 years and then became the provost of another small liberal arts college, Washington College on Maryland's Eastern Shore, and from there, I mean, all through that period of time, Jim, I was still connected to IHS. I was teaching for their programs. I was mentoring their grad students. And I stayed connected to that community, to that intellectual community. And as I was, I was, I was thinking about my next steps uh, professionally. I reached out to some friends within that network, and and we started thinking about what kind of opportunity might be out there for someone who was a classical liberal scholar who had uh, some leadership experience as well as teaching experience within higher education. And we started talking about the Institute for Humane Studies. And the president at that time, Marty Zupan, was just thinking about uh, reti- that retirement question. And so we worked together to uh, the point where we are now, which is, uh, has me landed in a wonderful spot, which is the president of IHF.
0: Okay, we need to take a few steps back now. Define for us, please, classical liberal, that, that term. What does that mean?
2: Sure, happy to. Uh, In many ways, you need not go uh, deeper than to say the founding principles of the American experiment are based on classical liberal ideas. But it is worth articulating where those ideas come from. So uh, it's the late 18th century um, scholars of Adam Smith that we might point to, for example, as providing that foundation. So it's, it's no accident that it's the late 18th century that we have the launch of the American experiment, because that's when the liberal tradition was in its full flowering of uh, within uh, the scholarly world. And the ideas themselves, though, are are not esoteric or uh, particularly fancy they 're very fundamental it 's uh, based on the idea, for example, that every human being possesses inherently possesses dignity, and from there, then the principle of individual liberty naturally flows from that that because people possess human dignity, we need to make room for their projects and their and their aims and their purposes. And that means that we need to have that, that scope of liberty. And those concepts then move into a concept of justice, that each of us has a duty to respect the rights of others. And equality, that we, are, we have equal standing within society because we are human beings and we have equal standing before the law because we are human beings. Those are the, Those are some of the most basic principles that underlie the what I would call the liberal society, the free society. And there are there are more nuances we could get into, but those are the fundamentals.
0: You know, you probably are not aware of this, and not many people are, but with two partners, I have composed a musical called Convention, The Birth of America, and it cites the Constitutional Convention, and so I'm really attuned with the founders. I, I call them founders because there were mothers as well, certainly Abigail Adams and, and others, but but to a person, they all believed that the most important function of government was protecting us from the encroachment of government upon our liberties. The second most important was keeping us safe, and I believe, and Emily, you may go along with this as well, that a classical liberal values person was Thomas Jefferson. That that fellow who said numbers of things, the first, in my view, was, I don't care if you worship one god, 20 gods, or no god, it doesn't pick my pocket, and it doesn't break my leg. And and I think that, that pretty much establishes the individual uh, and the sanctity of the individual and our liberties, and I could go on from there, but I assume that you're a fan of Thomas Jefferson's as well, Emily Chamley, right? Yes, and,
2: and I, that's one of my favorite quotes from Jefferson, and because it really captures the ethos of a tolerant society, that, that what you believe at, or what you don't believe has no, has no, does me no harm. And, and if that's true, then I should be tolerant of you. And one of the cool things about toleration is that when we're practiced at toleration, we learn that you and I can believe different things, and still live together peacefully and productively. And over the course of time, we may even have conversations with each other. We may exchange ideas. We may learn from each other. And that's, it's on that foundation of a tolerant society that we build a pluralistic society. And that's where lots of different people with different points of view and different outlooks and experiences on the world can live together peacefully and productively.
0: Now, wait a minute. That sounds pretty radical to me. You you mean IHS believes in free speech, intellectual diversity, and open inquiry to allow them to flourish? You're, you're not telling me something like that. that. That's pretty radical stuff, isn't it, in today's world?
2: Exactly. We are radically open at the Institute for Humane Studies. We are committed to that radical openness because that's how people learn. And also, and I would go back to that point about the good society, it's not only how people learn but it's it's how people cooperate and and learn to recognize that we can all be quite different from one another and as long as we're respectful of one another's rights that we can live productively and and peacefully together
0: and this is what separates the united states from other countries having been founded, they, they were founded politically or by a ruler or a king or whatever, but it was founded by the people. It's we, the people. And, and we're getting away from that from my standpoint. Uh, this polarization we have today in our country, I've, I've never seen anything like it. And even in the institutes of higher learning, uh, we've gotten away from uh, believing the free market is a good thing. Uh, free enterprise is, is a good thing. Uh, incentives matter. I mean, all of these things come from Adam Smith and others. Uh, the founder of IHS, of the Institute for humane Studies, was a fellow by the name of Baldy Harper, as I understand it. Uh, back in the early 1960s, he was an economics professor. Uh, is it a coincidence that and now you're attached to George Mason University and the, and the rest, but is it a coincidence that IHS and economics seem to go hand in hand, Emily Wright Harris?
2: Yeah, Next so evening. I think that, uh, first of all, that's exactly right, that uh, Baldy Harper was an economist, and uh, he founded IHS in 1961, and he, he was a liberal in the old sense of the word, that, that uh, old European sense of liberal, which included not only a free and tolerant society from a social dimension, but recognizing that the ability to give it a go economically, to try out economic experiments, to be entrepreneurial, that this was a key part of what it meant to be a free person as well. And that it's when we have that kind of economic freedom that we get lots and lots of productivity, for sure, uh, but also lots and lots of cooperation and voluntary solutions emerge in the social order when we are able to experiment economically. So uh, Baldy Harper saw economic freedom as being hand in glove with the other things that we like about a free and liberal society, which is a lot of political freedom, a lot of artistic freedom. All of that is combined with and commingled with economic freedom.
0: Now, I'm afraid that I feel that Ian Rand, uh, whom I, I've read her books, etc., but she's done us a bad turn, that in her writing, she was very well known as saying greed is good. And if you look at it from her standpoint, she's right. But what she really was saying was that if you act in your own economic self-interest, that it's good for society. And and the the, the that short SAI Pencil discusses this enormously, where have so many people all around the world, many of whom, of course, don't even know each other, know each other's exist, but you you develop the wood for the pencils, you develop the graphite, you develop the the eraser, all of that, and you're all acting in your own economic self-interest, and you end up with quality products for reasonable competitive prices. Am I explaining it the way IHS would with regard to Ian Rand and greed is good?
2: Yeah so so I I think that you you are making an important distinction here with uh Rand's characterization of greed is good that quip is as you say unfortunate because then people um people who are you know kind of raised with just the sensibilities that you and I are raised with which is say no actually greed is not good um it's it, it's it's not the way we want to treat our fellow human beings and and instinctively we know that and so we're shocked when we hear it now, if you actually have the patience to work through uh, Rand's longer essays, you see that there's a lot more subtlety to her argument than that. So, it does her a disservice to not look closely at her argument. But that being said, yes, there's a branding issue, right? When she when she um, has these kinds of quips, that it, it allows for others to take that sort of surface level away. But I do love that I pencil. Uh, essay that you that you cited, because in addition to uh, uh pointing out that with markets we tap one another 's capabilities to uh, uh, to generate value for others that that this that the generating the pencil and any other market product is a massive collaboration process that 's one of the cool things about that essay is that it ends up making very visual and vivid for us how many thousands of people are involved in the making of a simple product, even though they don't know each other and they don't coordinate with each other directly, they somehow are able to cooperate with one another to generate useful objects. Now, I would take it just one step further and say that that, that the iPencil pencil. Essay also points us to how knowledge works in society. That the knowledge that is required to make a pencil or anything else in the world is never given to one mind. That the knowledge that is necessary to make the things that we find useful. That knowledge is fundamentally dispersed across the economy, across countless market participants. And that's the miracle of market prices in the market system is that it allows all these different individuals, each with their own plans and purposes that actually would not necessarily sync up with each other, suddenly are able to sync up with each other because we've got market prices allowing us to coordinate with others we don't even know exist. And that mechanism of human cooperation is an astonishing achievement. If it had been the achievement of an engineer, right, we would be marveling that engineer uh, as, as, as being the most genius, the highest genius that we've ever encountered. But no one ever engineers the market, and no one ever fully engineers the objects that we uh, that we bring to market from start to finish, as the iPencil essay makes makes that point. So the knowledge problem that is to be solved, how do we coordinate all the, all that knowledge that exists in different shards, in different people's heads, how does that all come together to bring us the goods and services that we value? That comes through the spontaneous order of a market system, and that's really a miraculous thing.
0: Well, indeed, and in the market. You are responsible for the decisions you make because if you make good decisions, you'll profit from them. And if you make poor ones, you'll suffer from them. And you get government involved in the marketplace. It's an amazing situation because the people in government do not, in effect, be held responsible for bad decisions. And one, Emily, you may not have heard this before. I believe it's true that when Mao Zedong had finally taken over China and read China, uh, he decided that they were going to declare war on sparrows because the sparrows were, in effect. At their crops and, and taking away their crops, and this was, this was a terrible thing. So, they declared a successful war on sparrows, and then they had an infestation of insects like you can't believe, and millions of people died. Uh, you know, it, the government just is not good at that and should stay away from making decisions in the marketplace. I assume IHS preaches that doctrine.
2: Well, we rarely preach anything. <laughs> We're, uh, uh, we uh, instead we invite inquiry uh, around these uh-huh. kinds of questions. Um, but I think your your point goes to the point that uh, that markets themselves are definitely about incentives. That we need to make sure that um, that well, what a market allows us to do is to internalize the cost of our decision making. So if we make good decisions. We earn profits and we're rewarded. We make bad decisions. We bear the costs, And, and that's, that's the opposite of the reward. And, and it disciplines. The market engagement disciplines us. But again, it's a similar point I'll make is that the other thing that happens in a market environment is that we learn. So it's not just a sad story that when we make uh, losses, when we make the bad decisions, we make those losses. The other thing that happens is that people learn. Individual entrepreneurs learn but also society learns as well. And so when you think about the market process, it's really a process of social learning. And that's, I think, the salient point that you're making about it's. there may be times when we want government to do things, but we ought to be very cautious about what those things are because when the government steps in and says, no, we're going to take over what had been a market process. We're going to step in and we're going to take that over ourselves. It's it's a lot like saying we know exactly what the solution is and we're going to impose that solution from the top down. Once you have that, you're not going to get the same kind of learning process that you would in a market. And so we ought to be very cautious about having government take over things that can be done in civil society and within the marketplace mainly because it, it stops the learning process.
0: Well, you certainly convinced me, and, and you were certainly right to chastise me for the use of the wrong verb, but preach was, was not the right one. But it, while you were talking, it reminded me of Thomas Edison, who said, you know, I conducted numbers and numbers of experiments, but I didn't fail when experiment didn't work. I simply proved what didn't work. And I think that that's what you're saying as well. You learn from this, and, and that's critically important. But But let me isn't this stuff kind of ivory tower all good and well but but how do you put the boots on the ground or the rubber on the road or another trite saying what does ih do to actually pr- induce society to understand that that this thing is is happening so much and and i'll give you an example uh, quite a while ago i was on a radio talk show from iowa And I was talking with a farmer. We were talking about the subject of hemp and ethanol. And uh, so the farmer came on the the question and answer and saying, well, Judge Gray, I'm going to speak against my own economic self-interest because I know that the government has required ethanol to be made from corn, and I raise corn, but... If you get into it, you can get more ethanol from an acre of hemp than you can an acre of corn, and the corn will clog your carburetor and the hemp won't. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not my area, but the market will figure these things out really quickly. And if the government comes in and and orders ethanol to be made from a particular product, uh, we stand a risk of, of losing, but again, not being responsible for those losses. So, so why is... Is IHS not susceptible to being called an ivory tower? Sure, that's fine, classic liberal and the rest, but, but what are you doing with the boots-on-the-ground issue?
2: So what IHS does is that perhaps it's, it might be helpful for us to, for me to, to describe what our vision of what good looks like. And our vision is that higher education becomes a place where These ideas that you and I have been talking about are just regularly bumped into. They're, they're taught, they're discussed, they're debated, they're challenged, and they're developed on the college and university campus. And that's what we're excited about is, is engagement around these ideas. And so what we do, the activities that we do is we support the scholars who are uh, really excited about these ideas. The, the scholars who drive a deeper, understanding of ideas within this intellectual tradition. And we do that in several ways. We uh, provide funding support for graduate students and for professors. We also partner with faculty who want to bring these ideas in a kind of intensive Socratic discussion mode to their students in a weekend colloquium. We also, uh, and I think that this is in many ways the most important thing we do, is that we make sure that we connect scholars to the ideas that drew them into the life of the mind from the beginning. And we also connect them to one another. That a lot of these folks uh, that are interested in these ideas, there might be one or two on campus. And so by connecting them, by, by convening them in research seminars and in research workshops and colloquia, we have that opportunity to connect them to one another. And if we've done our job well, those scholars leave just that convening, that gathering, just brimming with ideas for things that they want to write about or teach, or maybe they come away with, you know, a couple of new collaborators, or if they're senior scholars, they've met some emerging young academic talent. And some of that young academic talent has perhaps met, you know, some of their heroes uh, that they've read before, but they've never met in person. And, it's that intellectual recharging that we really are going for when we convene these scholars. And so one of the things that Baldy Harper had noted is that scholars who are interested in these ideas were so often lonesome souls. And that's what he wanted to do is to create that sense of intellectual community because that's where the magic happens. And so, you know, we, if we're doing our job right, there's, there are no more lonesome souls.
0: So, does IHS continuing on a regular basis to keep contact with your scholars that you have worked with and recharge their batteries uh, as such, do do you keep that contact uh, for a long time?
2: Exactly. So, we see the opportunity to connect with them oftentimes when they're students, you know, usually graduate students, sometimes even undergraduate students, and they say, I want a career in the academy. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a scholar. And then we connect with them throughout the course of their, throughout the trajectory of their career. And that's really the the sort of uh, value proposition of IHS is that we're in it for the long game, that we connect with those scholars who are excited about these ideas and who are doing great things with their students, in their disciplines, in their research, and on their campuses. And we ask the question, what can we do to support your good work? And some of, the t- some of the times we are not the right organization, but we can usually point them to the right organization that can help them. But for a lot of the things that they need, IHS can be that source of support, whether it's a uh, small scale, those gatherings that I described, or it's just even mentorship and uh, getting, being put in touch with uh, the right colleague, maybe halfway across the country. Those are the kinds of things that IHS does.
0: That's that's just simply outstanding, and and we we need these sorts of things. Uh, we're going to come back after a, a short break and and talk about uh, in effect still boots on the ground as to what IH, IHS has done, and I'm going to ask its president Emily Shamley Wright uh, some of to not be modest, but to, to actually discuss some success stories. How many scholars do you, you have that have been uh, in effect not molded but but their eyes have been opened by this process and and what are they doing now but and you also had written an op-ed piece in the Orange County Register on Sunday the uh, what was it December 20th of last year 2019 that was uh, you know entitled uh, here it is reclaiming the liberal ideal is key to human flourishing. We're going to talk about what that human ideal is or liberal ideal is after we come back after these short messages. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. Join the Libertarian Party today at LP.org. Together, we can move mountains.
1: Listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit judgejimgray.com. That's judgejimgray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge
0: Jim Gray on All Rise and we have our wonderful esteemed guest, Emily Shamley Wright, C H A M L E E Wright, W R I G H T, the current president of Institute for Humane Studies. This is just a really great group. It's not just idealistic, it's not just holier than thou. It's not Ivory Tower. These really people they, they get in and they expose the whole idea of liberal values to, to numbers of young people, help them. Uh, to become uh, teachers in their own right, professors or otherwise, and maintain that spark. But uh, as I said earlier, Emily, uh, you you were called to my attention more recently uh, on December 29 of 2019 in the Orange County Register, and I'm sure in other periodicals around the country, you had an op-ed piece entitled Reclaiming the Liberal Ideal is Key to Human Flourishing. Uh, What do you mean by the liberal ideal? I know we've touched on it. And how is that key to human flourishing? And what do you mean reclaiming? Have we lost it? Those are three questions, by the way. There'd be an objection in my my courtroom for compound questions, but uh, here we'll ask those three anyway.
2: (laughs) If I don't answer all three, you can remind me which one I missed. But the liberal ideal is the good society. It's a pluralistic society, a tolerant society. The liberal ideal is a society in which intellectual and economic progress are the norm because of that commitment to openness that we've talked about in the earlier segment. It's a society in which individuals and communities flourish because it's a community based on peaceful and voluntary cooperation and mutual respect. So those are the things that I think identify the liberal
0: ideal. And what is that to, to break in with a new question, and we'll come back to it. What's the difference between the human ideal and the liberal ideal?
2: Well, I, I think the liberal ideal, by using that language, I, and, it, and you asked about, what is it that we're reclaiming, I, I would like for uh, those of us who are still considered themselves liberals, in the broad sense of the term, to reclaim that word and to own it proudly. Um, so I, I describe myself as both a classical liberal, but, I, but that also fits within a broad tradition of liberalism. And I, and I respect that other people might disagree with me about uh, what um, the ideal uh, economic policy might look like, for example, and they would still call themselves liberal. And that's fine, as long as they're still respecting the basics that we talked about right at the start of the show the, the respect for human dignity, individual liberty, justice, equality before the law, those kinds of basic principles, then they're liberals. And that can apply to people who are left of center. It can certainly apply to conservatives who still hold on to the liberal principles that were entrenched and interwoven, marbled through the founding documents of the American experiment. So you could be someone who leans a little bit right in the conservative sense, or you could be someone who leans left, or you could be a classical liberal. But if you adhere to those principles, then you're a liberal. And that's what I mean when I, when I say in the uh, Orange County Register piece that liberals need to reclaim that tradition, is that we off, I think we have forgotten that that is the common ground that really supports the good society and drawing attention back to that broad intellectual tradition, political tradition of liberalism is one of the things that we're most excited to do at IHS because we are in a position to bring classical liberals to the table, but also people who are left of center and more conservative leaning, but who still have these kind of liberal principles at their core.
0: Well, I can certainly say that, that and duck in a, a little plug for the Libertarian Party, but Libertarians are classic liberals, like you define it, and classic conservatives. They believe in responsibility. They believe in in, in in responsibility for your actions. And they also, like you say later in your article, believe in the respect for the autonomy and the dignity of the human of the uh, individual. I'd go so far as to say that there, I'll quote a comment from, uh, that uh, The bigger the government, the smaller the person and, and i I ride with that. I think that 's what you 're saying in a slightly different fashion, but the more power the government has, the less power that the individual has, and vice versa. Is that in effect also within your framework
2: yes, and I, I think this is this the way you 've just described that gives really good context to why uh, both conservatives libertarians classical liberals uh, have a um, a focus on limited government. Uh, and I don't think that, that, I like to think of limited government as a means, not an end. That the reason why we want to kind of put a, a, the constraint on the growth of government isn't for its own sake as much as when we constrain government, what we are maximizing is civil society. What we maximize is scope for both individuals and communities to find solutions. And that's, what, that's the value of having a constitutionally constrained government, for example, is because then we are set free to find solutions to the problems that we face, both as individuals and as communities.
0: And then we will all rise together? You're, you're not filling into my, uh, my theme here, are you?
2: And then we will all rise together.
0: <laughs> you know, I believe that one of the greatest achievements in human history was the Industrial Revolution. That it really brought a lot of people out of poverty. It helped... Uh, Look into medical issues and nutrition and the rest, but it also brought a lot of harm because you had a lot of people in unbridled uh, free enterprise system that were, had child labor they were working lengthy hours a day and unsafe conditions etc so yes there is a blend there is a means a need for government in that regard too uh, and so it, it would be that that combination that you're talking about but uh, if you're going to compare governments or compare societies uh, the free enterprise system simply triumphs as Milton Friedman said there's been no people that have ever been brought up out of poverty except through a system of private property property rights, and and free enterprise system. Uh, But you can compare, if you wish to, the East Germany versus West Germany. Hey, what a comparison that would be. Or today, North Korea versus South Korea, or even now what's happening in that poor country of Venezuela, that they've gotten away from the free enterprise system. They need to hear more from IHS.
2: Yes, one of the things that is, so you you asked about the, liberal society and, and what seems to be happening, uh, why do we need to be reclaiming it, uh, now? And I, I, I think a lot about that question that, uh, it seems as though people have run away for our, seem to be running away from that liberal tradition. And I, I have wondered why, and perhaps, perhaps the answer is that, that those liberal principles are so much a part of our, uh, of our identity uh, that we came to a point where they, we just accept accepted them as common ground that, that it's like anything that's common ground. You you kind of take it for granted. Um, It's astonishingly easy to take for for granted uh, the incredible accomplishments that is made possible by a free society, by society that's governed by these principles. But if we, So, for example, if we wake up out of bed in the morning, you know, we don't, we don't think hard about whether or not the ground is going to meet our feet when uh, we jump out of bed. We just jump out of bed and the ground is there and we can go on with the business of our day. We never stop to ponder before getting out of bed, well, is the ground going to be there? Is it going to support me when I put my weight on it? You just get up and go. And I think that, I think that these liberal principles are very similar in that we have gotten accustomed to having them there, so we haven't really needed to think hard about them or to defend them and to articulate why they're important. And because of that, I think that that's why we're seeing illiberalism rise on, and really both ends of the ideological spectrum. And that's where we, I think, need to step in, Any anyone who considers themselves uh, a Part of that liberal tradition needs to be drawing their attention and the attention of others back to that common ground, because otherwise I think it really could crumble beneath our feet.
0: Now, the private sector is in many ways, in my opinion, in competition with government. And uh, I was saying that really uh, IHS doesn't really compete with government, but in a lot of ways it does. That Private civil society, in my view, often generates far better outcomes than government activity. Uh, Where does IHS philosophy fit into that relation uh, on one vis-a-vis the other?
2: Yeah, I I love the question, even though you're right. I don't think that IHS's uh, core... uh, activity competes directly with government services. You know, we're in the business of opening up conversations about ideas. So I don't think that we're in direct competition with government, but I love the question because it gets at why openness in the production and exchange and provision of of everything, of ideas, of goods and services, is so important. That openness is, so, so let me put it this way. I mean, Obviously, at IHS, we have a point of view uh, around the classical liberal tradition. We think that point of view is underrepresented in the academy, and we're working hard to um, make sure that those ideas are regularly encountered in, uh, in the American university system. But with that being said, the last thing that I would ever want to have happen is that our point of view became the uncontested dominant point of view in this space. Because yeah, as that would, soon as that'd that be, that be a
0: contradiction comes, in terms.
2: Yeah, the the learning stops, right? The learning slows to a crawl. And this goes to your point about civil society, that the better it oftentimes generates better outcomes than government because of this of the fact that there's multiple ideas and approaches being tested out simultaneously. This is what economists call contestability. Markets work so well because there's always An opportunity for someone else to come in with a better idea that could, you know, tip the the top company out of their position because they did not keep up with the best ideas. And people learn through this trial and error process. And where there's contestability, society is going to continue to learn. But where government takes it over, that's where it's as if we've said, well, we found exactly the solution that we want, that we need, we don't need any more learning. And so we can stop the learning process that otherwise bubbles up from markets or civil society. You know, where in history would we look back and say, ah, that was the moment we really should have stopped learning, right? That we had everything right back at that point in history and we should have just stopped learning. Well, that there's no point in history in which that's that's the case and that's because we keep learning and so by having this open contestable space is how societies learn
0: you you have the openness the the willingness to listen to other arguments i've said frequently that unless you can explain what the doctrine is that you're opposed to uh, unless you can explain it in common language, you have no business being opposed to it because you have to understand it before you can oppose it and and as soon as government takes over a particular function, then like you're saying oh it's been decided, the tugging and pulling of different ideas more or less ceases i think that's that's in effect and that's taking your language i too believe uh, a little uh, plagiarism is a good thing on occasion, but but it, it's all discussion stops once government puts its imprimatur on things, saying this will be the way it will be. Is that in effect what you're saying as well?
2: That's right. That it it goes to that point that that there still may be new ideas that get tried, uh, or that that uh, the you know a, a government process may still generate change. But it tends to be a kind of learning process, and it becomes more of a political process. And so you can still get change, but it it tends to be more about politics and who's in power, not about finding the right solution.
0: Let me see if I can take that a few steps further and and correct me if this doesn't work for you and IHS, but I do believe that, for example, the state of California should not own any dump trucks. Uh, We have something we call Caltrans, and they maintain freeways and highways, and they build things and the rest. Uh, And if you only allow government to do this, then you don't have competition. Uh, free enterprise system, you'll do it on private bid, you'll be held accountable, and you have that storm and drong, that, that competition that once government takes it over, the competition is gone. Is it the same thing in effect by equation of the of the marketplace and free ideas when you have a Caltrans in effect in the universities? Yeah,
2: I think that that's, ex- that's exactly the right analysis. I would just tweak the language a little bit and say you when when a government provision has a monopoly on, on some service, uh, like, uh, was it trash, trash collection was the, was the uh, example, then the outcome is going to be that you still might have a competitive process, but it's not going to be a market competitive process. It's going to be a politically competitive process. So what that means is that there will still now be competition but it's not competition to curry favor with the customer it's comp- and to provide a better service. It's competition to curry favor with people who are in positions of political decision-making. So what you have is a, re- is a recipe, a setup for crony capitalism to come into play. And the sad part is that that once, once these contracts are you know, completely bid out and, and you have any kind of mon- monopoly provision – It may very well look like you've got a market outcome because some of those providers might be uh, privately owned companies. But because the provision process, the competition process has been a political one and not an economic one, not a market one, we basically have a, a, a system of crony capitalism, not really a market competition system.
0: Hear ye, hear ye, uh, everyone. Emily Chamley Wright, the president of Institute for Humane Studies, you phrase it so well. I'm, I'm so appreciative you your coming on and, and talking to our audience about these issues because you're, you're succinct, and it's just great. Let me see if I can bring up another type of similar issue, and that is the separation of church and state. Uh, I happen to believe that Religion should gather followers by persuasion, certainly not by fiat, not by coercion, not by power, uh, and if you don't have the separation of church and state, you're going to have the church influencing government adversely, which is not a good thing, and similarly and equally adversely, you're going to have government influencing the state, that that the power as opposed to the persuasion issue should be separated. Do you see that as a reasonable uh, dichotomy as well?
2: That's exactly right. That we should be worried about the state of government when it is uh, under the under the under the umbrella of religion. But exactly, I like your your, your point. You make the point so well that the reverse is also of a, a gra- of grave concern. That we don't want, we do not want to have to have um, private civic associations, whether they're religious or non-religious, have to have to gain permission from some state actor to exist. And this is, this goes to the heart of the freedom of association, goes to the heart of the First Amendment, that it is that permissionless society, that permissionlessness of being able to associate with whomever you want to associate with, and that as long as that group is is not infringing on the rights of others, then they should be allowed to experiment. And just as we've talked about economic experiments and civil, and experiments within civil society. We also have cultural experiments, and that's what religion is all about, is, is having a kind of cultural experiment to see who will align with one another in a, a kind of common cause. And so by keeping government out of that, one of the things that we preserve is the exit option. So we allow people the freedom to associate with whomever, whichever visionaries they want to associate in whichever common cause they want to associate, but just as importantly, they also need the freedom to disassociate. So when the experiment fails, when the, um, whether it's a religious group or a civic organization encroaches too much on the liberties of the individual, that individual can disassociate, can leave. That's so important to a healthy culture, right? That that openness of of what a good society looks like, we need people to have that exit option.
0: You wrote or you said earlier in our interview uh, that IHS, in effect, talks about what good looks like. I think what you just mentioned is what good looks like, and you put it so many ways and and so so well. Uh, I can revert back to my quote from Thomas Jefferson with regard to worshipping one God, 20 gods, etc. It's basically live and let live. Uh, You should be able as an adult, Emily Chamley Wright, to live your life as you choose as long as it does not wrongly affect my ability or others' ability to do the same. Just live and let live. And, and in effect, I think that that encapsulates it as much as anything I can think of, other than freedom to disassociate. I'd never thought of that before, but certainly, certainly really important stuff.
2: And I agree, I agree especially in the spirit and the context in which you frame the live and let live a um, uh, uh, Phrase that so many of us are accustomed to. But I will say, I think just, just for the point of listeners who may not be persuaded by your point of view, by um, a liberal point of view, that, that phrase live and let live can so often be, oftentimes be misconstrued or uh, misunderstood. And let me put it this way, that, that, that one of the um, things that we're seeing in critiques of liberalism on the left and the right is that uh, the, the criticism looks something like this that well, because liberalism is so focused on the individual it so emphasizes the individual that it is only about it 's only about the individual it has nothing to say, it has no bandwidth left for uh, you know understanding what the good society looks like, what community looks like and I, I, I think that that 's a misunderstanding of liberalism um, because if if you think about what happens within a free society within the liberal social order. All that activity, all that cooperation generates tremendous benefit for not only the cooperators, but all of us in their proximity too. That when we've got people who are collaborating in production, they're driving down the cost of producing goods and services. That's It makes it easier for us to consume those goods and services. When we have collaborators in ideas, it makes us all smarter, even though they weren't our ideas in the first place. And so human beings, in addition to being hardwired to be social creatures, we're going to be drawn into the social world even more by the uh, activities within liberal society. That being said, we then need to have good rules that help to ensure that we are on the right track uh, with each other, that we get a lot more cooperation and peaceful collaboration than force and intimidation. And so those rules, liberalism's response to the need for those rules, are the rules of just conduct, rules of property, rules of contract, uh, rules that favor consent as opposed to force. Those are, the, those are the rules of just conduct that it are taken seriously within the liberal ethos. And so it's that liberal idea of the tolerant society is not saying, and the in, and focused on the individual, is not saying that the good society is one in which we're all, you know, uh, cavalierly disinterested in one another. No, we're very much interested in, in, in our fellow human beings, especially in, the, in a human scale context of community. But we also need to respect the individuals, otherwise we don't get those exit options, otherwise we don't get the individual experiments, we don't get the learning that comes from that. So the, the one way to think about liberalism is that, is that it is a sublime paradigm of the good society, not in spite of the fact that it's focused on the individual, but because it's focused on the individual.
0: Well, and times change, and the technology changes. And what you're saying, in effect, is a lot like, oh, Kodak film should have been able by government fiat to continue to force its product down people's throats, even though we had new digital film. You know, Kodak didn't change with that, as I understand it, and and, and the government should not assist them in pursuing uh, things that, that do not change. Also, the idea... That you using the word liberalism, I think I infer that to be classical liberalism because no one could call Thomas Jefferson a liberal as that term is defined in today's world.
2: But he he was a self described liberal in his own mind, right? I mean, in his in his own way of thinking, he he was thinking of himself. As, as, say, Adam Smith thought about himself as part of the liberal project. And I'm, and I'm not arguing with you. I think that you're right. I think that, that that word has become confused and confusing. But I think that rather than, you know, some some would respond that for that reason, let's just not use the word anymore. And I would... That's the reason why I want to recapture that that word um, and, and do it respectfully, right? I recognize that not everybody who calls themselves a liberal is going to agree with everything I have to say, and, and that's fine. But if you are adhering to those basic principles that are described within the Declaration of Independence, then you're a liberal. And so naming that is powerful because it reminds us what it's based on. It's based on liberty.
0: Indeed so. Um, In the time, we just have a couple of minutes remaining, Emily. Uh, Tell us how people who want more information that we can give on this, this hour show, can get more information off the web or however else. And if they want to support you financially, like I've been doing for years, uh, how can they do that as well? Please tell us.
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Jim, for supporting us. We are so grateful for all the many partners and supporters at IHS. And the uh, connection is very easy. it's viHs.org. and if you're a potential faculty partner or a graduate student, that's the place to go. You'll find your spot there. If you are excited about contributing to IHS, you can also find the right spot there. and you can also connect to me. I'm very easy to find. I'm E. at IHS.
0: Chamley is C H A M L E E and Wright W R I G H T. There's no hyphen in that, so it's uh at ihs.org.
2: The um, that would be the the connection for the um, if you want the website address, it's the ihs dot org
0: that's just wonderful. Well, Emily, thank you for not only for being with us here on All Rise, but thank you for what you and the Institute for Main Studies does. It's not ivory tower, it's bringing us back to basics, the basics of who we are as a country. You know, when in the course of human events, the the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, which in my view is the best document ever written by the hand of man and it brings these things into focus liberties the private sector free enterprise not unchecked certainly not i mean we need child law labor laws and we need safety and we, we need we need those things but it needs to be a blend but we can't to get away from this polarization how can we do that you know we ought to be able to discuss anything and as emily uh, Emily Chamley Wright says, you know, we need to be able to f- have the freedom to dissociate or disassociate, Can do our cultural experiments. We've been culturally experimenting for years and our country successfully. So let's cut back from this polarization, this tribal stuff that we're seeing, see the benefits of other people's discussions. By the way, also visit uh, a website that I had a hand in bringing in, which is projectunderstanding.com, www.project, B-R-O hyphen J-E-C-T, understanding.com, and there we talk about the commonalities of the various world's religions and and philosophies. We all have so many things in common. Let's focus on these. Let's assist and support groups wonderful groups like the Institute for Humane Studies. Again, give our thanks to all of those people who are out there working with, following up with, and teaching classical liberal ideas because that is what made America great. The soul of our country is our freedoms, is our liberties, is our ability to have economic freedom, the rule of law, free speech, open inquiry, all of those radical things, radical indeed. They are what makes America great. So tune in again same time next week or anytime on demand from the Voice America Variety channel. Just click uh, on demand and listen to any of these past shows. I'm going to listen to this interview again because there's so much here. So, Emily, again, final thought, but, but thank you for being with us, and Godspeed to you.
2: Thank you so much, Jim, and thank you for everything that you do for The Good Society.
0: Well, as we close off, we'll say that uh, life is good, and it certainly is, and if we employ these libertarian values, these classical liberal values, as Emily Shemley Wright would remind me, we will truly, literally all rise together. So that's it for this session. Tune in again next week, and uh, again, as I leave you saying, tune in next week, I will leave you again as saying, life is good, because it is.